Welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Very special first podcast of the year episode. Um, it reminds me of being a child when you'd return from holiday break and see everyone in their cool new clothes that they had gotten for the holidays and everyone was refreshed and ready to tackle a new year of school. Uh, I'm joined by Andrew Hood. Hoodie, are you ready to tackle a new season of uh, World Tour Cycling here on the Vel News Podcast? Indeed, I am. Looking forward to 2020. A new decade is dawning. I have to say, Fred, I was disappointed Santa Claus did not bring me a new bike. We'll have to try to remedy that. Yeah, probably because he saw what happened to you on your old bike. Stitches, <laughs> hospital visits, broken bones. He was like, Andy Hood, I will not bring you a bicycle this year. I will bring you uh, health care benefits. <laughs> yes, health care benefits and an indoor trainer that I can't fall off of. Uh, we're very rested and ready to tackle the new year. Andy Hood had a vacation um, in the Caribbean. There were beaches involved. There was maybe a, a cruise ship. What were, what were you doing out there, Hoodie? Yeah, yeah, just kind of unplugging for a couple of weeks there, Fred. You know, getting uh, taking the old wifey down to uh, – you know, my wife is Spanish, so down to see the, some of the colonial territories there in Puerto Rico. And a uh, little, little cruise, you know, it's only the second cruise of my life. And I'm, I can't say it's my favorite way of traveling, but, you know, it has its time and its place. We had a good time. Main day was just nice to uh, just disconnect. The funny thing is, actually, I ran into uh, a colleague, Raymond Kirchhoff. So I think you might know Raymond. He's yeah. done a few pieces even for the Outer Line lately. Uh, famous uh, Dutch journalist. He's part owner of a hotel down in Curacao. So I got a chance to hang out with Raymond for a couple of hours there before my uh, cruise took off. And uh, we'd rented a car that day and, and had to cross the island and cross this big bridge. And, uh, you know, the the, the uh, cruise is like wailing on its horn rrr, rrr, in the last half an hour before it leaves. And we're lost like in the behind the – trying to find our way across this big – Get a big bay and a bridge and had to ditch the car and run sprint back to get on the boat, but we made it. <laughs> I didn't hear that story. That's an amazing story. Uh, no matter what corner of the globe you're on, you are never that far from a cycling journalist, uh, it seems. Um, I had a great little time away, unplugged, didn't open my computer, didn't turn on social media for a few days. Uh, my wife and I took our little baby down to St. George, Utah, and we explored canyons and Zion National Park. And it was warm, and we hiked around a little kid in a baby carrier and took a lot of photos. It was cute. And again, best part, no uh, time on the computer. I, I recommend everyone needs to do that, especially the cycling media. We need to unplug from Twitter, from Facebook, from Instagram, and just go dark. A little digital detox, uh, I feel, will do us some good so that we can come back in with all the hot takes uh, around cycling and prepare to yell at each other and get yelled at by the masses on Twitter. Hoodie, we have a great show this week for our welcome back piece. In the second half of the show, uh, we have an interview I did with TJ Eisenhart, a fan favorite of the Vela News podcast. He's been on here a couple times before. Um, TJ, longtime pro roadie in the American road scene, is switching it up and he's going to gravel. He's following the footsteps of Pete Stetna and um, some of these, Ted King, some of the other guys. He's launched his own gravel racing campaign and it's a kind of an innovative setup. And we talked all about why his gravel racing setup is is kind of different from the norm. He has this really interesting sponsorship model. We did this interview in his, um, his studio where he does his paintings uh, down there in southern Utah outside of St. George. Um, TJ, he's, he's character. He's one of these characters. He's one of these uh, cyclists where you're like, man, are you sure you're a cyclist? Cyclist is supposed to be boring. <laughs> he's more like a surfer. He always looks like a surfer, you know, fresh yeah. off with his puka, puka beads, yeah. puka shells. 
Before we get to TJ, though, we need to talk about some of the news going on in the world of pro cycling. We have yet to start World Tour Racing. You're getting ready to leave to go to the Tour Down Under, which is still going on despite the terrible wildfires going on in Australia. So I think next week we're going to have a little Tour Down Under and sort of early season preview. But uh, Hoodie, what can you say about some of the reporting you've done around that race? Sounds like the race is still going to go on despite the fires. Yeah, I was making some calls the last couple of days just to really kind of get the, the feel of what was happening on the ground in Adelaide and down by Geelong. Um, because, you know, we've all seen these terrible fires that are sweeping across parts of Australia. And so often in life, you know, when you see what happens on the TV or you kind of get your your the intake of the news sometimes filtered through the, this, this, the, the funnel of, uh, you know, either social media or television, you know, it doesn't really represent the true story of what really is going on. Of course, it, it, and especially with Australia, it's a continent, of course. Uh, no downplaying of the tragedy of what's unfolding there. It's terrible. It's happening. People are losing their homes. People are dying. The bushfires are among the worst in the history. But in spite of all that, both races are planning on continuing with their events later this month. The Tour Down Under, which is in South Australia, near Adelaide, uh, well far away from the worst of the fires, which are the worst of them are on kind of the southeast coast of Australia between Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, so nearly a thousand kilometers, six, seven, eight hundred miles away, with the prevailing winds going west to east. So the majority of the smoke, which is a major, can be a major and will be a major issue uh, if the wind direction changes, especially for the Geelong race, which is much closer to where some of these worst fires are right now. But right now, the general feeling is um, in Adelaide, especially, it's very safe. There's no, there's been a couple of uh, localized uh, bushfires there, but you know the bushfires are part of the landscape in Australia, and the community feels that the best thing they can do, of course, without compromising the health and safety locally as well as not jeopardizing efforts that are going on nationwide. The best thing they can do for the sport, for their community, and for all the fans is to have these races. Of course, that might change as we get closer to the race. In fact, you know, some of these real decisions of whether it's on or off might not happen before until hours or just days before the, these events start. But the Kid L. Evans race, early February, nearly a month out. So a lot can happen between now and then. Tour Down Under with the women's race starting towards the end of next week, a little bit more of a, of a, uh, a recent issue. But uh, right now, the fires are not terribly bad or there's hardly any fires at all right around Adelaide. There's, there, there's some nasty fires burning on what's called Kangaroo Island, which is a kind of a large island south and uh, west of Adelaide, which is seeing some of the more, more horrific damage there, especially to some of the wildlife. But uh, that's well far away from Adelaide right now. So fingers crossed that these events can happen because it's a big investment, not only for the communities, but also for the teams. You know, they plan on having these races be a big part of their buildup towards the season. The pros are already starting to arrive the last couple of days. Roman Bardet is going there. Uh, Peter Sullivan's been there the last three years. He's going to the Tour de San Juan this year, just uh, a decision he made well long ago, previous to this. But, you know, it's a big investment for teams. And if they have to uproot, not get these race days, not get these training days in, they'll have to go look elsewhere and they'd have to pay for it. So there's a lot of interest to kind of keep both of these events on, on the rails. Again, always with, with utmost respect with what's happening to other parts of Australia. And there's going to be some other events planned throughout the race. I know some of the riders are talking about doing some fundraising as well as just some uh, efforts to kind of show their support for what's happening in the rest of Australia. Yeah, it's a tough situation. Um, I, you know, we all hope that everyone 
um, you know, in the area is safe and, you know, seeing the pictures and reading about it um, in the newspapers online. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy and our heart goes out to everyone down in Australia affected by these fires. Um, it is an interesting situation what happens when there is a natural disaster that happens at the same time or at the same proximity as a major endurance race. I was in New York City in 2013 when Hurricane Sandy came through and while it didn't necessarily impact a lot of the areas of the course, um, and it hit a week before the race was set to take off, um, growing sentiment around, you know, the damage caused by the hurricane in a lot of the different parts of the city. And then the fact that, you know, there was going to be this race go on, there was sort of a feeling that the infrastructure used to, um, keep the race going should have been put towards, um, recovery efforts and safety efforts, et cetera, et cetera. And so ultimately the race was canceled. And I remember, I mean, it was a huge bummer. There were athletes who had flown in from around the world, thousands, tens of thousands of athletes who had come to New York City to participate in the race, um, thinking that it was still on because, you know, the, the storm hit a week out and then there was a cleanup effort. And up until a few days before, it looked like the race was going to happen until public sentiment really turned against the race and against the city for allowing the race to happen. Like I said, you know, there, there were these, you know, personal tragedies going on and infrastructure that people felt should have been used for recovery and cleanup that was going to be going for the race, you know, generators and manpower, et cetera. So ultimately the race was off. But I remember being there and seeing how quickly public sentiment turned um, against having the event. So I don't know. I mean, we're going to keep our eyes on that with this race and, um, and you know, the fires down there. But you're going, you're going to be headed down there, Hoodie. So, you know, if there's a decision made one way or the other, hopefully it's before you get on that 14-hour flight. Yeah, well, it's a little bit longer than that, actually. But that's an interesting point, Frick, because you're exactly right. The, the public sentiment will be a huge deciding factor in what will happen in Australia if if the fires continue to burn like they do, if there is a debate within, especially within Australia, the Australian community there about really what where the resources should be put. You know, that debate and that question could change as we lead into later next week. Ultimately, I think it's up to the locals to make that decision. I mean, it's quite easy for us to you know, pipe in from, from afar. I think the people that have the vested interest there, as well as uh, just within, you know, the, the community of Australians, you know, they're, they're very much of a, you know, they're all in there fighting for this right now. And I think a lot of them think the best thing they can do, if they can safely again, without uh, extracting from something else, is have these events and, and let life go on. Because uh, remember, remember mountain biking after 2001, wasn't mountain biking the worlds in Vail? I think it was one of the few, if if any events that actually unfolded a few days after the September 11th attacks in 2001. Yeah, just a couple of days afterwards, and it was uh, Allison Dunlap, the American who won Worlds in Vail that year. Uh, anyway, we're going to keep monitoring that story on the site. Uh, moving on, a story I wanted to talk to you about was uh, we're going to hear from the man himself here coming up, TJ Eisenhart. But, um, you know, the continued push of um, road racers going to participate in gravel. We talked about this a few weeks ago with Peter Stetna calling an end to his world tour road racing career to race in gravel. Now we have TJ Eisenhart, who was a very good domestic road racer. He won the Redlands race. He almost won Colorado Classic. He was sort of a fan favorite. Um, you know, came up through USA Cycling's development program, was on the BMC trajectory, ultimately raced in the United States. But he is um, not going to be road racing anymore at the age of 25 to launch this gravel um, 
you know, gravel racing program. And from what it sounds like, it sounds like uh, Ian Boswell may be another name to keep an eye on. He may also be doing some gravel and, um, you know, mixed surface racing in the future. And I think the interesting thing here, Hoodie, is that I've been talking with a number of these guys and gals of just what life looks like to be a gravel racer. And it is dramatically different from what it was to be a uh, top end road racer. You know, when you're a top end road racer, your daily life is train, rest, recover, repeat. It's basically go push yourself and then immediately go to the couch and do nothing because the recovery is such an important part of the life. Now, it's different when you are a privateer gravel racer because a lot of the um, the elements that keep any team going, whether it's handling logistics, booking flights, updating social media, li- liaising with sponsors, getting gear, working on your bike, all the things that like a team mechanic or a team communications liaison or all the other people employed by a team, the jobs that they do, um, those now fall on the backs of the athlete themselves. So in talking with TJ and talking with Stetna and talking with Colin Strickland, some of these um, riders who are in the gravel scene, uh, it just sounds like the life of a gravel racer is a lot more complicated and complex than uh, it would be for a traditional road racer. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how some of these guys can uh, transition to that role. I think I know just talking to Peter Stedna, he's quite enthused about the whole process. He said it's kind of energized him, but he also admits that, man, he goes, there's a lot of work behind the scenes of these teams, and he's just a one-man operation. So you can imagine at a world tour level, even at a pro conti level, what really goes into running a team, you know, get organizations, 30, 40, 50, 60 people behind these major teams. And now uh, it's a one-man show and maybe, you know, Peter, I know last year was racing. He had his mom and his uh, wife, you know, passing up water bottles and, you know, carrying around spare tubes. Uh, you know, I wonder if he'll actually have a, a mechanic on the ground with him, you know, maybe a Swanee. But if he does, you know, maybe that stuff he'll have to pay out of his own pocket. Uh, it'll be interesting. But I think uh, this week, actually, Peter said that. Uh, put up on uh, Instagram his uh, racing calendar for the coming season, and he's gonna be busy. You know, it's the the gravel calendar is really filled out across uh, North America with some couple international events in there. So between gravel and some mountain bike racing and some other events, uh, it looks like he's racing almost every weekend from you know March all the way well into the fall. Yeah. So when I was talking to these guys and you know they're talking about how oh man the life is so busy and I it's not just train and recover it's also like do these emails and do the social media and work on the bike and all this stuff that used to be done by this army of minions on a on a world tour team I just started to think about how you know how this fits into the wider dynamics at play in North American cycling which is look we're all following what's going on. Tour California goes away. A lot of these teams are having a hard time keeping afloat. Yet there are these gravel races and individual sponsorships and gravel sponsorships. And I actually think that this might be the new model for funding elite racers for sponsors. Because think about it, like, you know, in the old way, let's say you're a sponsor for like EF Education First or any one of these big world tour teams. You're throwing them a bunch of gear and a bunch of money, but you're basically a patch on the jersey and you get some access to the riders and you get your name on the, you know, team bus and you you do get, you know, media impressions out there and, and the, the, you know, the guys are using your product and you can promote that, but you're paying a lot for it and it's a crowded sponsorship landscape. You're, you know, one of 10 or 15 or 20 different brands all competing for eyeballs on this one team. 
Now, let's say you're back in Peter Stetna, and I bet the spend is a lot less for a sponsor. You're not giving them $100,000. Maybe you're giving them 50. Maybe you're giving them 25. But you're one of like two or three sponsors. And he's going out there and doing all these races and he's posting to social media. And, you know, the, the economics have just shifted for what it means to be a sponsor um, being involved in competitive cycling. And I think that's one of the engines that's driving this new business model going forward is like sponsors are looking at the landscape and looking at some of these individual programs and saying, boy, you know, before my sponsorship dollars were going and paying for the communications guy and the masseuse and the mechanic and all these different people whose job it was um, to keep a team running in addition to, you know, the 15 or 20 guys or gals on the team. What if I just cut out the middleman and just go right to Peter Spetna, give him the money and the product and let him promote me on his own? Yeah, it's more work on his end, but I'm not having to pay the salaries of all these other people. Oh, Fred, don't, don't, don't pull the cat out of the bag like that, Fred. Keep that stuff tapped down. Well, you're right because that's, that's kind of what I think a lot of people are, are looking at in terms of the bang for the buck on the business side of things. But that kind of reminds me really of going back to the old days and the early days of mountain biking when you had you know some of these original crossover guys. Remember the crossover guys, Tomac and uh, uh, Ned Overin and some of these guys that came into the mountain bike scene? They started building up these one-man operations similar to what's happening on gravel right now. Will it not be very long around the corner before we have gravel teams, gravel trade teams? I mean, if the scene keeps growing and there's money there, especially in bike sales, it won't just be one guy sponsored by a bike sponsor. It'll be a whole fleet of you know team gravel. I think that's what's going to happen next. You know, we'll see how the scene continues to grow, and if there is almost even like a grassroots uh, movement against that, I don't know because you know there's some people already saying there's no there's no place for teams or even almost professionals on the gravel scene. It kind of goes against the ethos of what the whole thing is supposed to be about. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that again. You're right. You know, this is a sponsorship model that has been. Uh, in mountain biking for a long time, has been in cyclocross for a long time. I mean, I, I remember having these conversations with Tim Johnson 10, 15 years ago about building a personal cyclocross backing and how it wasn't just about racing. So much of it was about media and creating videos. You know, Jeremy Powers did this in cyclocross with his video series. And you're, I guess the what we're seeing in gravel is just an extension of that. It's just funny that it's roping in these guys from the road scene who have been so used to, you know, like I said, just training rest, repeat. And now all of a sudden it's like train, answer emails, build a PDF, talk, you know, the answer is some more emails, create a video, book your flight, like do all the things yourself. And, uh, oh, it's just these roadies are going to have to do it because, but it, like I said, it's a cheaper spend for the sponsor. We're going to talk to TJ all about that stuff. Um, last year I wanted to talk to you, Hoodie has been this bizarre saga involving Chris Froome. We've seen a number of news stories appear in various outlets in the last week or so, kind of alarmist stories about how Chris Froome was at a training camp and it wasn't going well and he had to leave and there's speculation that maybe it was because of medical reasons. And uh, as it turns out, it sounds like a number of these stories sprung from the same uh, source, which was a media outlet in Italy that used quotes that may have been that may have been a bit old, and it sounds like some of the speculations about Froome's health and the potential for him having left a training camp early due to medical reasons may be a bit overblown. You got the backstory. What's going on here? 
Well, we'll see how alarmist it might be because it could well be on the mark. That's, I think that's kind of what drove a lot of this and fueled some of the speculation in the first place because, you know, the enigma really right now going into 2020 is just where does Chris Froome stand? Uh, yeah, it started, you know, it's kind of one of these spawning stories that kind of just kind of get copied and copied and copied again. And then, you know, when you copy something and copy something and copy something again, it kind of gets very far away from where the truth started in the original kernel. But evidently, there was an Italian magazine called Beachy Sports, a monthly old school magazine printed. Don't even have a website, really. Uh, someone had taken literally a, a graph or two out of this. Probably what was I can imagine was a multi-page story about the training camp in Mallorca in early December with uh, Ineos. The, every team kind of does this these days. And early to mid-February, they had the last kind of uh, end of season preseason training camp. That's when they pose for the photos to get fitted for the new bikes. They do some training, but it's not the first hardcore training camp. Most of that happens, what we're coming into right now, at the big January uh, window for the training camps. That's where Chris Froome is actually heading this week to Grand Canaria. So one, of the st- one line in the story was a quote from Dario Cioni, ex-pro, Enios sport director, saying, well, Chris had to leave early. We'll never, we don't know if he'll ever be the same rider he once was or something like that because the quote was copied quote was copied again from Italian to English to Spanish to Dutch back to English and it just kind of made the round so we saw this pop up a couple of days ago you know we're old school journalists here Fred you know we don't copy we try to at least make our own phone calls made a couple of phone calls tried to get the poop on what was actually going on and uh, the backstory literally was you know no one really wanted to go on the record uh, to tell, you know, to, they didn't want this story really to get any legs. You know, so a lot of times the source will tell you on background, but they don't want really to see their name or, or you know, really a story about it out there. But basically, uh, Froome was there for a couple of days. He did leave. That was true. Evidently, it was to go back to where he's based in Monaco to continue his rehab. Because as you've seen uh, with his crash, he's had a couple of follow-up surgeries. He had a big chunk of metal taken out of his uh, upper femur where the worst of his break was. That was taken out really not until November. And Chris has been on the bike a few days. But you know we don't really know how much Chris has been training. Uh, I was poking around on Chris Froome's uh, Strava page. Not one ride posted on there since mid uh, May when he was just smashing it up the uh, Tayday there in Tenerife, setting new records on Tayday before going to Dauphiné. Then, of course, that next week is when he had that crash at the Dauphiné and just, you know, kind of shattered his whole left side of his body. So this kind of came out, this kind of, uh, you know, kind of this this void of, of hard information. And right now, uh, Enios is still kind of keeping it under wraps. There was a little bit of pushback we saw from Chris Froome on social media the other day saying, oh, you know, things are going well. You know, yeah, I left, but uh, things are going well for my return in 2020. Even Brailsford was uh, making some comments to La Gazzetta. But really, you know, the real story is, you know, we don't know where Chris Froome stands right now. He still has not set a, a first race for his 2020 calendar. The only thing he has on his mind right now is to try to get ready for the tour. So it was a big space between now and the tour starting in late June. A lot of place, a lot of space to fill on his calendar. And right now, I don't think anybody knows if Chris Ready is Chris Froome is ready to race again. Yeah, those uh, December, January Chris Froome Strava files from years gone by were always so amazing to to look at. I remember a lot of times you'd be in like South Africa just logging these huge 170, 180, 200K days of the 
ton of climbing just back to back to back. And it was always sort of something to look at in wonder, which was the Chris Froome early season Strava files of him just doing these big rides. And without that, without any messaging from Ineos, really, you know, we are just sort of like left to speculate right now, especially when you start to think about, you know, we're not in early December anymore. We're not in November. Like it's January. Like, you know, traditionally this is go time for base miles for grand tour guys. And it's not, you know, it's not like, oh, if he misses early January, the whole thing is thrown off. But at some point, Chris Froome has to have a pretty big block of mileage getting into his legs if he wants to get ready for the Tour de France. So, I mean, does that mean like, you know, hoping for the best and just trying to hit February? Does that mean, I don't know, does that mean doing the Giro? Does that mean doing a bunch of races and training back to back in uh, February and March? Like at, at some point, the guy just has to get the miles in the legs. Yeah, you're exactly right because um, it's not like missing a, a, a month or, or even a, a good chunk of time for an in, for an illness or uh, other reasons for being down. You know, this is a major serious injury. He was bed bound for weeks, if, you know, for for a long time. Didn't really even get back on his bike until well into late November. And it's really speculation. I mean, how much he's actually even ridden his bike. I'd be surprised if he's, he's even done a thousand Ks. That's pure speculation. We just don't know. But you're right. I mean, normally this time of year, you know, the way the, the high level of the world tour, you know, people take maybe a couple of weeks off these days. You know, Garen Thomas might go to L.A. and, you know, watch the Lakers games and, and having a couple of nice dinners. But even there, you know, he's he's still riding his bike and putting in some miles. And, you know, Chris Froome has not been doing that because he has not been able to do that. So for him to catch up, get back to where he could be ready to win the Tour de France, really, and, you know, we're looking at about six months from now, that's going to be a big ask. And so any sort of alarm around Chris Froome is not entirely unwarranted. You know, I don't think everything is peachy cream as, as everyone suggests coming out of uh, – you know, Froome has admitted as well. He goes, this is the biggest challenge of my life. And, you know, he, he he's not – guaranteeing himself that he'll get back to where he was, but he's going to try and he's going to be working for that. Well, yet again, the biggest uh, story uh, involved around pro cycling involves Chris Froome. I think this is like the third year in a row, fourth year in a row, fifth year in a row that uh, Chris Froome has kept us all waiting. Well, it's another story we're going to keep our eyes on as the season rolls along. Andy, we're going to get to our interview with TJ Eisenhart. Um, I will bid you adieu next week. We will catch up before you head to Australia to talk about the tour down under. We're also going to have uh, Andy get ready for this. We're going to have some new co-workers here at Velo News who I hope to have on the pod briefly to introduce themselves. Um, pretty exciting time. We've been in the process of hiring, bringing on some new editors, and we're going to have some new guys and gals to introduce to the readers or, and the listeners here at Velo News. All right. Good stuff, Fred. All right. Let's catch up with TJ Eisenhart, Andy Hood. I will catch up with you next week. All right. Thanks. Uh, welcome back to the Vela News podcast. Fred Dreyer here. It is the first day of 2020. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone. And I am coming to you from a painting, an art studio in a backyard of a house in Ivins, Utah. And that house belongs to TJ Eisenhart, who's <laughs> sitting across from me. Um, 
TJ, happy new year. Happy new year, Fred. It's great having you in the studio. Welcome. I, you're definitely one of the first uh, kind of people besides my family into the studio. It's not often, but yeah. welcome. It's a good vibe. It's, you know, when I heard you were in town, I was like, let's do a podcast in the studio. Nothing but good vibes in here. and Very good vibes in here. Also, just to express and show you my other side, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, so TJ, I was in town uh, with my family doing some vacation, and I had been following you on social media, and I knew that something was was going on. And that thing that was going on was that you were um, calling an end to your domestic road cycling career and launching something completely new. Um, like a few other cyclists that we've written about on the site, um, TJ for 2020 is going to be doing his own thing in the gravel space, and you have a project called the Imaginary Collective. Yeah. And talk to me about it. What is going on, TJ? You, you've been yeah. this road racer the last few years, and now it seems like the mold has been broken, and you are going off and doing something completely different. Yeah, definitely. I hope it's brand new, and I hope it's different, and I hope it kind of makes people wake up and kind of jump out of that same old old school business cycling mold that actually isn't working. I mean, it keeps failing every year. <laughs> so I definitely wanted to think outside the box and think about, you know, how to do this, how to, you know, so it's me and Andrew Dahlheim for Imaginary Collective. And really it's all about highlighting the creativity of the sport, the culture of the sport, the artistry of the sport. You know, it's not showing up to these races and, you know, showing up <laughs> with a mean mug on my face at the start line, you know, ready to just tear up some legs. I'm going to be showing up to those races really wanting to meet the people, why they showed up to that race, why they're doing it, what's the story, the background of the race, you know? I think it's so special, the gravel, and each of these races are always so different, and the backgrounds of these races are always so different, and I think it's awesome that the community that they just bring together, and I really, when I did Dirty Kansas last year, it was like, I need to be more a part of this, and I wanna be a part of this, and you know, just basically all summer, <laughs> sitting down with Andrew, and basically, you know, calling each other every day and figuring out, all right, let's do this. All right, we need to do this. And, you know, uh, we're super excited. We have Factor on for our bikes next year and Champion System for our clothing. Be rocking some Envy wheels. And uh, it's just super exciting, like I was telling you, Fred, earlier, that really with these sponsors and our, these people that are supporting us, we're highlighting the creative side behind them. So, you know, not just the performance space. You know, there's other athletes out there already doing that. You know, you have Colin Strickland, you have Ted King, and you have everyone and so I really want to show that you know with Envy Wheels that oh we can put you know my artwork on the wheels oh with Champion System we can you know create new kits every four weeks because they have that ability to you know and really show like just what you can create with the sport and really highlight I guess this culture because I think gravel's really something unique and brand new and I think it's ours as an um, kind of American culture and I just want to <laughs> try creating that and I guess holding on to it anyway <laughs> you know when I thought when I saw a number of road cyclists moving to gravel um, most recently Peter Stetna who uh, left world tour to race in gravel for 2020 your name was kind of bouncing around in the back of my head because yeah. 
we've seen you race in the U.S. the last few years, TJ, and you know you famously wear your big turquoise necklace when yeah. you're racing, and you give post-race interviews that are very expressive and very <laughs> different from what you normally hear come out of the mouths of um, cyclists. And you know you're this free spirit who's on the stage, who's waving at people and having a really good time. And when I saw the gravel thing start to explode and people start to put together these individual sponsorships, I was like, boy, I wonder if <laughs> this this kind of has TJ written all over it. Um, what was it first of all about? road cycling and the last your your most recent experiences in road cycling that convinced you that this was the pathway to go down uh it honestly probably it honestly i don't even think had anything to do with road cycling in general which is funny a reason not to even do it anymore but it all was the reason because my daughter so all of a sudden you find out you're having a beautiful daughter last december and at that time you know, racing for a good team, but it just felt like I was swimming upstream. You know, you're just you're giving your heart, your training is hard, you're with the best coach in the world, you're riding the best bikes, everything, and it's just like you're still stuck. And you know, the team went down to Conti level, like it just you know, I had this daughter coming and it just felt like I needed to finally do something for myself and finally, you know, I felt like I was complaining a lot at that time. I felt like I was like just I guess mad at the sport or upset with the sport that oh man like what am I doing with it and it was just like stop complaining and just do it yourself you know and I think that's kind of the big thing is just having my daughter and you know thinking all right in 20 years or 18 years when she's asking what she wants to do and you know us as parents telling her like oh follow your dreams but then thinking in the back of your mind like oh I didn't do that myself like what a hypocrite you know like oh I didn't you know, to tell this daughter, my daughter, like, oh, you can do anything, you know, and I like to go to a lot, around to a lot of schools and do speaking and tell these high school kids or elementary kids that they can do anything. And it's like, well, if you're talking all that, then do it, you know, and it all it took was kind of for me to just say that, like, just just to do it and go out, send some emails, make some phone calls and realizing that it was kind of funny, like every time someone would tell me no or like it just fueled that fire, it just fueled that you know that all right like let's make it work let's find someone else who sees the vision and when and when it came to telling these sponsors or approaching these people it also was you know stop telling sponsors you're gonna win this race or that race like every team does you know there's constantly like oh we're gonna try winning the tour we're gonna try winning this race we're gonna try doing this race that's great but for us it was like we wanted to tell them you know hey we want to do something different we want to really highlight creativity and just I just see gravel as a blank canvas and I think <laughs> I can create something pretty amazing from it and I can't wait to keep doing that you know cause I want to create something where like 50 years 100 years down the line all of a sudden imaginary collective still around and I'm not like I want to create something where someone you know just like Justin did uh with Legion and he's definitely my biggest inspiration for pushing this forward is I remember talking to Justin last spring like wanting to join legion and both of us really talking and everything and it was like both of us on the same page both same vision same vibe but he's just more like result wise you know like he's a killer he's gonna win like he's gonna go out there and get it and the vibes for both of us are just different and so when i realized that it was like okay i need to create my own project that's all about good vibes all about love 
send you know the way you feel on the bike you know and justin has it perfectly where he's the way you know you do that but also win you know they're by far the best in this country for winning crits and i think he's about to take it super far and that's a big and was a big big inspiration for me it's talking to him and seeing how he did things all year and really kind of just being like well <laughs> he did that like i can do it too and uh just doing it and i think the reason it's successful for me and for him is just because we're telling everyone who we are and we are being who we are you know it's like i said we're not con- trying to convince a sponsor to do something that we're not you know we're actually upfront about i feel like who we are and at least yeah, it's a big inspiration. And so this is a completely different uh, business model in, that w- what we've normally seen in, in road cycling. So in traditional road cycling, you have a team and sponsors come on board with a team and they give them equipment and they give them money yeah. and the team pays the riders and it goes out and does all these races and the riders are there to win races or perform. And that's about it. There's some other sponsorship obligations, but it's totally different. Now, what you're doing is completely different in that you're cutting out the team they're cutting the out riders. the middleman cutting out yeah. the middleman basically so take making it instead of a team turning it into a brand and company mm-hmm. and not starting off with like seven or nine riders with people sitting on their hands at home waiting to go to this race or that race but you know choosing me and andrew based off our skill set and being you know okay i can i don't have to be on the phone telling andrew to you know contact this sponsor or do this he's already 10 steps ahead of me calling me saying hey I just got us this sponsor or, you know, methodicals on or this, you know, and you're just like, well, damn, man, like I need to pick up my phone now and call someone like I need to get on the move. And that's the best part is like I finally have now created this company and this project with, you know, my good friend where we can tell each other, yo, man, you can be as creative as you want. You know, don't come to me and like ask me about this you come up with it you know you have a jersey idea you bring it to the table you have this idea you bring it i want this to be all about creativity you know whereas before it was like everyone's so hesitant to post because they don't want to offend someone on the team or a sponsor where i want people to post i want people to be out there and it was one of my favorite things about andrew i remember we were on a call and like uh and he was just like with uh, one of our sponsors and one thing about Andrew is just straight up blunt you know he'll tell you how it is and I love that because with me and our, our contrast it's so different where I'm more like the good vibes the love let me give you a hug Andrew's like all about that but more on the blunt side like you know just <laughs> and he'll tell you how it is like if your equipment was bad before he'll tell you your equipment was bad before and so like to have that refreshing taste in your mouth where it's like oh man like you're not just getting TJ's good vibes but you're also getting the realistically, you know, view too, you know, like he'll tell you, oh, this product's bad. Oh, we need to do this. So here's a question for you, TJ. In the old model, um, a sponsor got return on investment by, uh, you know, let's say a rider wins a race. Yeah. They get on the podium. They're raising their hands. There's photos. There's media yeah. that goes out on TV and the sponsor's brand name and logo is gets to be seen and they can say, wow, you know, we run, you know, our bike was winning this yeah. race and yada, yada, yada. Now, in this new model, how do you create return on investment for your sponsors? What are sponsors getting? By working with them. By working with them. By working with them, by not just using their products, but working with them to create new things. And from a young kid, I remember when I would approach other, you know, sponsors or potential sponsors, I remember my dad always telling me that is like, 
don't just ask for things. Don't ask for free things. Don't ask a sponsor to send you a free bike. Don't ask a sponsor to send you free wheels. Like ask, you know, how you can create with them, how you can how you can help them promote it, how you can, you know, what are they looking for? Oh, what other events are you doing? You know, with Monster, you know, uh, with Hydro, you know, it's not just in the cycling. It's, you know, getting me out to some of the Supercross events. It's mm-hmm. getting me, you know, doing those other things where you're connecting those dots because it's one thing that's kind of happened in the sport. We've closed off all the doors to the outside world and are just like, this is how we're doing it. Where it's like, me, I'm looking at other ways, other sports, other, you know, one of my biggest inspirations for setting this up was actually like the music industry, looking at like all these artists, you know, once an artist makes it, he sets up his own company, his record company, brings on his boys, you know, for that record company. They'll usually do their own album off it, you know, and they're always then getting off like, you know, uh, vibing off each other, you know, so if you're on this guy's album, you're getting recognition for that, you know, and so it's just about finding ways to involve yourself constantly with those, with your sponsors and not just <laughs> like, you know, asking for things because then, then all that you're good for is then just, if you don't, then to win, like if you don't win, you're good for them for nothing, you know, because they want to be involved with you. They want to create things with you. They want to, I mean, but some sponsors, I guess, don't like that, and that's why I won't be working with them, and that's just how it is. And that's how you find, though, the people that you are supposed to be working with, and that's why I tell people, don't be afraid to, like, tell them your goals right up front. Don't, like, if you scare them away, like, you scare them away. Like, then they're not, you're not supposed to work together. Like, it, the, be- the best thing you can always do is tell them your goals, tell them what you envision, tell them, oh, I love this product, oh, you know, I want to do this, do that, I want to do that, and like I said, maybe that's a bad thing sometimes, but that's just how my mind works. Like literally anything I look at, I'm thinking, how can I like basically add a TJ Eisenhart creation to it? Well, so you, you mentioned like um, Envy Wheels is going to have some yeah. some product where they can get a custom design on oh, the wheels. Man. And yeah. that is that works with you because you do art and you can create art that then will appear on the wheels. Same with... Uh, producing your own champion yeah with champion system what about other sponsors i mean like let's say i want to come and i want to sponsor your team like how are you going to promote the oh so basically yeah i mean so like uh another example is like with methodical coffee they're a big coffee shop out of greenville uh south carolina and you know what we're doing too is like taking the water bottles making them look like their coffee cups you know they're really (laughs) famous for their really like kind of fine china flower like look Uh you know and so that's, I think, the answer right there is looking at your sponsors, looking at the culture they have, looking at the brand they have, and learning how it applies to you. So, and learning how you can apply it in your way. So not just, not just signing on to a sponsor because they're the biggest sponsor of that genre or whatever, you know, marketplace, but looking at a sponsor and being like, oh, I actually drink this coffee. Oh, I can build something off this. Oh, I love their details. And then seeing their designs, what they use with it, you know, and then applying that to small things on the team that, you know, people see and are like, oh my gosh, that's some thought, that's so cool how they added that little detail, you know, and uh, yeah, so, you know, same thing, like, just like you said with Envy, you know, they have that program where they're going to be releasing where you could, you know, upload your image to the Wheels decals and, you know, for me, I thought like, oh, that's so cool, you could do anything and, but the best way to showcase that is, through my art you know putting my art on the wheels that truly shows you're putting your thought to paper then through the computer to your wheels and like 
I cannot wait. I mean, we already got the draft, like the you know drafts of the wheels and everything, and it's just nobody's gonna have those. Nobody in the world tour, nobody in the pro peloton, nobody's gonna have these wheels. And the beauty of it is, like I said, highlighting the different personalities of the sponsors and everyone and the look and image, but not just doing that for them, but doing that for the rider as well. So with me and Andrew, it was about how can you also give individuality to the riders of a team, you know, build up their individual brand, you know, and looking out for the individual riders. And so for us, it's like, all right, choosing a logo, choosing a color. All right, Andrew, what's your favorite color? Oh, olive green. So then that's his color. Like my color is turquoise, his color is olive green. And it kind of hit me. It's like, oh, it sounds like Power Rangers, you know, that type of vibe. And it was like, that's exactly what I want. I want little kids to look at you and be like, oh man, like, the red guy or the blue guy, you know, and it's like, that's how even adults minds think, you know, through right. color like that. And so it's just funny. Like, I think it's just the art artist in me that looks at those small things where people are going to be like, Oh, they relate to the blue or they relate to the green. And they re it's like, there's this one sponsor I wasn't able to get, but I was like, Oh, but you could sponsor Andrew, you know? And so that's why we call it a collective. It's like, it's not like you have to grab from it. You, you know, so you, can you and Andrew it. can have your own individual sponsors. In, in on individual. So like okay. Monster Hydro, they only sponsor me. Yeah. They don't sponsor him. And that's again, a, I hated that. I absolutely, and for every World Tour team or every pro team out there, taking away the rights of these individuals, uh, the riders. And I mean, I'm not one to say like how to fix it or whatever. I mean, unless you come join my team, but <laughs> like, it's just ridiculous absolutely ridiculous that you you just you suck the life out of these riders where they can't pursue anything and again it just bothered me that a company would a sponsor would sponsor a team and you'd have like one or two riders like either winning races or highlighting about it and it was like well why is that person giving 50 grand when two people are posting about it or really highlighting it and for me it was like that gives them the sponsor the opportunity to come on to the imaginary collective and be like, Hey, I want to sponsor Andrew. I want to spot sponsor TJ, you know? And it's like, gives them again the choice because not every sponsor wants to sponsor everyone on the team. And again, it's like, if they're not getting the, the, if that rider is also not promoting, cause you'll see some world tour riders and you look on their Instagram account and it's just like not posting a thing about their sponsors. And you're just like, why, <laughs> why, why not? Like, why are you not? So listeners, may uh take note we haven't talked about bike racing at all in this interview and oh, yeah. nothing about results <laughs> interviews it's just uh, the culture, races baby. or anything but i think this is important because tj this speaks to something that i've been trying to wrap my brain around for the last few months which is pro cycling in america is headed in a totally different direction yeah we've written about it on the site how the road scene is you know under pressure the tour of california has gone oh, away man, road yeah. teams are going away and yet the door has opened for cyclists to become entrepreneurs yeah. and to create their own programs and to get their own sponsors. And um, again, we haven't talked to anything about races. Yeah. We haven't talked about results because I think that this is just a really interesting story for listeners to follow, which is guys like TJ are going out there and creating their own um, cycling sponsorship outside of a team. Yeah. You're, you're you're very open with them. Hey, I'm probably not going to win any races. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm going to go to the I'm going to go to these gravel races and I'm going to engage with people. I'm going to create social media. I'm going to do art that showcases how cool your product yeah. is. I'm going to live my life in a way that makes your that, that puts your product out there. Yeah. And and brands are like, yeah, 
Sign me up. And that is like that yeah. is comp- that it's is so radical. different. It's from radical the when way you say it that. has been. Yeah, it's super it's I honestly I feel like I got away with bank robbery just cuz you're just like how am I I told my dream and my vision to everyone and they listened and they agreed and yeah, it was so much hard work. So much and still is like you're constantly answering emails or getting this done and designing this and it's like I think just my personality type though like I said w- was something that it needs that it needs creativity not just on the canvas but in all aspects of my life so you know and the moment I rode the road bike I mean the gravel bike at Kansas and it was just like wow finally I found that missing link you know like the road bike was kind of that piece where I could enjoy it and everything but it was still just too structured for my mindset my artistic vibe and everything and the gravel bike all of a sudden then like opened every door it was like oh you want to ride the single track that then drops you off at the road and that that then you take to the fire road which then takes you around this mountain you know it was just like or we could cut through this person's neighborhood you know the gravel bike reminded me of that time basically when you were a little kid and your mom would call your friend's house to tell you to come home and it was dark and you're you know you have the street lights on and you're just sprinting home and it's just about that feeling of the freedom of the bike and people talk about that all the time about how the bike makes you feel free and flying and everything but it was finally like I just felt like that free on the bike and it was like it was hard to then jump on a road bike I mean all once I did Kansas I didn't jump on my road bike at all besides other races I just rode the gravel bike and you know it didn't have a computer on it and like it just was it was funny because the biggest issue was I like last year because I was training so hard I was with like one of the best like working with Bobby Julik you know just doing insane training and I got on I got under it and it was awesome and after you know Colorado I was just like out of fitness I never like imagined and then all of a sudden kind of the blanket and carpet got taken from under you with the team and you're just like okay not gonna have the coach anymore not gonna do this just gonna ride and like I would go out to ride and I hated it anytime I would jump on my bike all last winter it was just like I hated it I could not figure out why and it was I would just because I was constantly comparing myself constantly I was constantly like oh this is too I'm not going hard enough oh I'm going too slow up this climb and it it took me forever where it was like I would leave the house and be gone for like an hour and come home because I just like hated riding the bike and finally the gravel bike broke me and it was like oh this is why it's fun just to go out and ride and now especially with the baby you know my weekends are my only free time to really ride outside because I'm busy babysitting all day doing Zwift and so like now when I go outside it's just like sucking in that air with like you know I have no computer on my bike nothing at all and just purely like I might be out there for an hour I might be out there for eight like and with the beauty of like my new gravel bike the Vista the factor Vista it's so comfy that I can just go do that and it was cool it's a good sponsor plug yeah yeah there you go but it, it was cool like last week or two weeks ago I was you know Colin Joyce and Seb Quist were out here and they're by far the best in in America you know they're our best and they're at the top level of their sport and it's cool that like you can get out there ride with them I have my giant 35s on and still cruise with them and I could just be cruising in my new get up and I'll chill out and it's still the same vibe you know it's still the same vibe as me as I was racing and everything but now I'm just I'm not faking the competitiveness anymore where sadly last year and I feel bad to a lot of fans or people watching but I wasn't able to give my all in training because I was too stressed about the new baby coming and 
kind of life in general and getting things running and so it was just like you just feel bad where it was like oh man like you know wasn't able to kind of give my absolute all at those races but it set me up because I knew I was planning on doing this and so it was kind of that setup for this year you know but uh yeah so it's just I'm excited going into next year where I can really enjoy it and enjoy being there with fans and people at the races and I think it's just so fun. I mean, you go to all these races and people are, you know, <laughs> drinking beer, having a good time and, you know, enjoying the massive, you know, the long distances. And it kind of hit me last year at Kansas where I was like, why are people doing this and not their local crit? You know, like why are these selling out in minutes? And yet the state championship local crit gets like 10 people or one people, one person. And to me, it was like, well, people in real life, they want something that is so hard that it squeezes real life out of them. You know, like people who are going to the day-to-day job all week that then look forward to Dirty Kansas to go suffer for, you know, 20 hours on a bike, which is like insane. Like people pay for that. And it's because like at the end, you've completely drained yourself of any negativity, any bad vibes. You go through so much like good vibes, bad vibes out there. Like my favorite comment was, about Dirty Kanza from uh, Indigo last year. Uh, and he was like, dude, it's like acid without acid. You go through so many ups and downs and bad vibes and good vibes. And it's so true. I remember like near hour nine last year at Kanza, me and Finney just like riding together and just like one moment I'd be dropping him, next moment he'd be dropping me. And it was like 10 minutes and you'd just be going through these ups and downs. And it's like, I think people, that's why they do it is for that mental kind of break to then level them back out because life right now is so serious and there's so much bad news on the news and like (laughs) let's just spread some good vibes and love so what races then will be on your i wouldn't i don't know if i call it a racing schedule but like where where are we going to see you at in 2020 what races are you going to go to so many fun events uh i'm super stoked so definitely like cans dirty cans uh uh true grit uh the crusher uh, uh, lead boat, you know, so Leadville and Steamboat. Uh, yeah, with True Grit, the Rift. Uh, the Rift, that is to me what we're making our year off of. Yeah. So the Rift is that main thing. So that's the race we want to be doing in like a big dock almost video and everything because that's the middle of the year. It's our only race where we'll be traveling out of the States. And I remember watching it last year. And watching the Tour de France at the same time, and like having friends in both, and being more jealous of the friends at the Rift than at the Tour. And I think at that point it was also like, all right, I've let go of that dream and want to just go ride my bike in Iceland. I mean, you go look at those photos and you just get chills. Like it just is gorgeous. And so I'm super excited to really go to these events, to take my family with me. To you know, we're not flying out to a lot of these events. We're going to be taking our car and you know, camping and having a good time and making it family oriented, having a good vibe and, you know, so going to Belgium waffle ride. Uh, yeah, just hopefully the first race be 24 hours of Pueblo. Still need to, you know, nail down a lot of things, but yeah, any, and, and this is also a shout out to any promoters out there or, you know, hit me up, send me a message, say, Hey, come out to this, this event. I know I was talking to Ben Wolf this morning and, uh, Brendan Rim and they're like, Hey, let's (laughs) dude, come out to Vermont, uh, Vermont, like come out to that race out there. So 
anybody out there listening want me at your event or I don't know anything that you guys think you could pertain to Imaginary Collective, hit me up. So, <laughs> so TJ, you were famously part of the uh, USA Cycling Development Program. You came up through the ranks, you know, junior program, U23, yeah. BMC. Um, I mean, looking back, I guess if you could give any piece of advice to your younger self, um, what would you tell yourself? Would you have done, done anything differently? Oh, man, that is everyone. Yeah, that's super hard and that's super... Uh, I, I, there's definitely, yeah, I think everyone always goes back and thinks about like the, the decision here or a decision there, you know, and I think in cycling too, it's very easy to do that because at the end of the year, you're kind of choosing like, oh, do I go with this team or do I go with that team? You know, it was like when I was young, do I go with action or do I go with BMC? So do you go an American side or do you go heavy European side? Do you go, you know, I had the opportunity where it was like, a few years back where it was like, oh, do you go with Rally or do you go with Israeli or do you go with Hinkat? You know, it's like all these things. And you can always be like, well, if I would have done this, I would have done this. And, or if I would have, you know, you say I would have signed for Israeli and you're then racing in the world tour, like you're racing, you're not able to pursue all these other things. Like I've come to the point where it's like, it does no good to look at that and analyze that thing because you're the man you are and the person you are today because of those things. And had I not had the freedom or diversity throughout the years, it wouldn't have pushed me to where I am today. Now, I'm not at a training camp in Spain. I'm in my studio with you. I was painting earlier. I was, you know, <laughs> hanging out with my baby and, you know, I still get to ride my bike. And I think finally it's nice to be honest and to tell people, like, I never rode my bike because I cared about winning. <laughs> that was just a lie, like a lie your team makes you say a lie your ego makes you say a lie your coach makes you say the best coach i ever had was scott Knightum, and it it was a long time ago he asked me i was in belgium and i was going through a rough time and he's like why do you ride and he told me do not say because you like to win and that was the first thing that came to my mind and it's like all those young riders they're programmed to say oh i want to win the tour oh, i just oh well, i'm in europe because i want to win this race i want to win this race and it's like well you only win a race like maybe once a year or I guess if you're the very best you win it a few times a year you know what I mean but it's like 200 other guys are showing up on that start line it's not like a normal ball sport where you have a 50-50 chance of winning or losing you know you have basically a 90% chance of losing you know maybe even more <laughs> and so it's nice to be able to kind of just finally tell people I like to ride my bike just because I love that feeling when you're, you know, hours into the ride and the sun is setting and your mind is faded and your body is starting to fade and, you know, you're hungry and you just can't wait to get home. But yet you're crazy. You're just like, oh, I can do another hour or two. And, you know, just that sense of spirituality, I guess, where it's like you're not thinking anymore because your mind is too tired to think. And so it's nice, like I said, just being able to say, <laughs> I don't care about winning. I don't care about any results and being kind of free with people and telling them that and, and it, like I said, it feel feel bad because my whole career I didn't care about it, and I would just ride to <laughs> ride in the winter, you know. So I would just train and race, literally, so I could look forward to October, so I could come home and do those long rides, riding towards Zion or riding up Kolob, and you know, just enjoying that. And so it's, I'm doing what I want to now, and I'm doing what I should be doing now, and it fits for me. And like I said, the World Tour is it needs to exist and it needs to do its own thing because those are for the people that love the numbers. They love the high end racing. They love that. We still need that. 
but I'm now bringing in that other category where those high school kids that are dreaming about racing their bikes professionally can look at me and not just look at guys in the world tour. They can look at like, oh, I like art. I like riding. I'll pursue TJ's route instead of, you know, the world tour route. So that's, I guess, making a new genre. Well, it's called the Imaginary Collective, and it's the new project by TJ Eisenhart, longtime road racer who is going into gravel and starting something new. TJ, wish you the best of luck in 2020. Thank you so much, Fred, for joining me. It's going to be so much fun. We'll stay in contact throughout the rest of the year and hopefully do a few more podcasts let everybody know how things are going. Sounds good, man. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Oh, 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 oh,